Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Um, my guest today is Kristen Swanson. Uh, she's the VASEC and Anna Maria Polak Professor in Cancer Research. She's also co-director of the Precision Neurotherapeutics Innovation Program, a director of the Mathematical Neuro-Oncology Lab. All of this is part of uh, Mayo Clinic in Arizona. Many, many designations and accolades that she has, so we'll just get into it. And uh, Kristen, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? Good, good. Well, tell me about your uh, research. What's the focus of it? So my lab is the Mathematical Neuro-Oncology Lab, and so it's everything that that name entails, the idea of anything mathematical and quantitative applied to brain cancer patients. Um, so we optimize patient care, leveraging quantitative tools, everything from mathematical modeling, like hurricane prediction for brain tumors, all the way to like artificial intelligence, machine learning sort of approaches. Well, what are you trying to model about tumors, like how they spread or when they'll metastasize or what? Yeah. So uh, the type of brain cancer we work on is a, our primary brain tumors known as gliomas. The most aggressive of which you might've heard of um, is a glioblastoma. It's Bo Biden had uh, glioblastoma, for example, John McCain had a glioblastoma. It's a very aggressive, diffusely invasive disease. And what that means is the cells uh, spread beyond where you can see them on an MRI or on any other imaging or even really surgically. Uh, so the tumor cells kind of spread long distances. And so one aspect of what we do is build uh, spatial and temporal predictive models of where each patient's tumor is spreading. So we can optimize things like radiation, where to dose radiation um, and predict uh, how, how or which treatments a patient will best respond to. And then the other aspect of that we, of bio, tumor biology that we sort of focus on is the idea of intratumoral heterogeneity. The idea that you biopsy in different locations within a single tumor, you get lots of different biology at play and drug or a treatment usually only targets one of those. We need to know what all is going on in the tumor and in order to know how to tackle it effectively. So what are you trying to model about the tumor? Are you trying to model the heterogeneity of the genetic underpinnings of the cells in it or yeah. just literally 3D spatially what it looks like or what do you model? Yeah. So it's, it's kind of two orthogonal things. On the one side, it's 3D spatial. So we build these 3D spatial models of temporal evolution. So it's literally a hurricane map for each, each patient's tumor. But that's kind of the overall abundance of tumor cells and where they're going and when they're going there. But the intratumoral heterogeneity aspect, we collect image localized biopsies. And what I mean by that is you have a patient and an MRI, an MRI of their brain. And you then, when the patient comes to the surgical suite, when tissue is collected, when the tissue is removed from the, the brain, when the, when the tumor is removed from the brain, you know where you're at anatomically on the MRI. So you could say, oh, well, and when I, when I send this little piece of tissue to pathology to look at it under the microscope and tell me what kind of disease it is, I also know where that's located relative to the MRI. So I can learn the patterns of what's on the MRI to predict what the biology is, the pathologist 
reads. So like I could predict, one of the things that we predict and work on is looking at intratumoral heterogeneity of the molecular diversity of the disease. And what I mean that is gene A is broken here, but gene B is broken there and being able to predict uh, where gene A and gene B are broken. Uh, And the reason you'd want to do that is because tumors like I said before, uh, respond to uh, treatments differently, right? Different portions of the tumor will respond differently. And if you have a drug that targets, say, brokenness of gene A, then you um, would only expect those tumor cells that are broken in gene A to be responsive and the gene B guys need need something else. Well, what do you notice 3D? Especially, what do tumors tend to look like? What's the distribution of heterogeneity? Is it follow a pattern and evolution? Yeah, it depends on a lot of things. So it depends on the evolutionary biology of of the the mutation or the gene target you're looking at. But so let's just talk about clonal like history. So you hear about tumors and having that that they have clones or subclones, and that you know if you could figure out what what the you know, base thing that caused this to be the primary clone, the base event, uh, the base mutation that, you know, sprung out the the next clone, then you could think of the primal clones, the primary clones, and then all the daughters from that, from that progeny. And if you could get to the stem, you could basically nip, nip it out as as the bud. So if you could target that stem mutation is, is the idea, right. Then you can kind of kill all of the cells. Uh, in the case of GBM, it's very heterogeneous. There's a few of those uh, sort of more stem-like uh, mutations in this disease where you'll find if one tumor cell has it, a lot of the other cells have it. But then there's other aspects of this disease for which that's not true. There's a lot, a lot of other biology for which that's not true. So that's one of the key limiting factors of being able to really cure and make a significant impact in GBM. And, you know, GBM has been, is probably one of the, one of the most aggressive um, tumors, GBM being glioblastoma, uh, is one of the most aggressive tumors there is. And one of the reasons for that aggressiveness is because of this heterogeneity within the tumor with regard to- But again, what does that look like? Does it, does, do tumors seem to grow from a center radial outwards or are there multiple initiation points? And can you trace the lineage of certain yeah, mutations? You- Yes, you can definitely trace the lineage of certain mutations, and it is definitely thought that there are areas of propensity for where tumors start, uh, but it's not really radial. It's more anatomical. It's the cells migrate very quickly along what are called white matter fibers within the brain. So it's the long axon tails of neurons. And so you get this very asymmetric, non-spherical growth pattern of these tumors as a result of that. The tumor cells um, use these sort of highways to get further distances in some directions and shorter distances in other directions because the highways don't that direction. So is the tumor proliferating? I mean, so it's not necessarily one ball-like mass. It's pretty early on, it starts to move along these preferred highways, as I guess you mentioned it and spread that way. Correct. Yes. I I kind of liken it to, um, I had one analogy at one point is, you know how you drop grains of sand onto a table and you can imagine them sort of individual cell cell, uh, sand granules rolling off of the pile. So visualize that as the cells, but then have each of those (laughs) be able to move. So they're like cockroaches on top of that. That's that's the kind of visual I I analogize um, for what the actual behavior of these tumor cells are. What appears to be uh, attempting to make a structure or, you know, based on how they move and spread and how the tumor grows? Again, it's not, is it, is it a monolithic thing or is it clumps or is it long filaments of cells or like, what does it look like most closely? The thing that makes it most, most unique is the fact that it's not really filaments. You know, you think of things like breast cancer, right? They follow ducts and then they expand in certain directions and then you'll get some 
you know, expansion, but it's really mass-like in a lot of breast cancer, not all, but in brain cancer, it's not mass-like, although they have these opportunity of these individual cells have the opportunity of traversing along these white matter highways. They are sort of single cell, somewhat independent, but they're still a collective group, right? But they're not, they're not bound together or really as stuck together as you might see in other cancers. So they really have a cellular you know, automatous approach where the, the, each individual cell has its ability to do a lot of things on its own. It doesn't necessarily need to be pulling and, and tugging with, with neighboring cells. So you, the pattern is, it, it literally is those grains of sand. You know, if you could m- remove all the brain tissue, you would see a pattern that's like dropping grains of sand onto a table with a pile in the middle of lots of them in the middle. Um, but then single, single cell ones, some have rolled really far away and some have, um, are much closer. Do you see that these, uh, these cancer cells are attempting, attempting to like recapitulate the structures of the brains from which they came? Or are they just, I don't know, they don't seem to have any particular function or structure or job. They're just expanding. Uh, th- no, that's interesting. So there's a lot of things that's that's really fascinating about this disease. Their opportunity seems to be what, what is their what they see as their opportunity, right? I think is that they want to build a community of like things like them, right? And so they call on the normal responses within the brain to allow them to be there. So they incorporate sort of wound healing processes. So they, 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 you know, peel back to those origins of saying there's wound, therefore incorporate all wound healing type cells to help facilitate uh, tumor growth. So that's sort of the, on the immune axis. And then, then d- they also tap into sort of developmental pathways, like developmental biology, like how you normal neurological development happens to be able to expand and grow their, their community, right? That's what all cancers want to do is they want to expand their population in a different controlled mechanism than what biology would allow for. You know, the idea is that they've escaped the biological controls of growth. And in this case, invasion. But again, are they, are they performing any useful function or is it completely self? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Yeah, so uh, that's a good question about how, how to think of it from a sel- selfish perspective. They definitely produce certain biological products. But the thing that keeps coming up when you the way you ask that question in my mind is the fact that you can have a very significant tumor mass that you can see with the naked eye when you, when you're in the surgical suite, yet that region of the brain can function nearly normally. So you can have normal motor function in a diffuse, in a highly infiltrated brain region. So there is this, this um, facilitation where they can keep the behavior of the patient, um, well, you know, well managed, well able to, 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 you know, be maintained um, despite having lots of tumor cells present. And one, that could be a sign of the biology of the brain being able to adapt uh, to insult, or the other side could be that this could be a strategy that the the tumor is using uh, to facilitate expansion. 
Well, I just wonder if the tumor is trying to set up its own brain structure or if it's just, again, capitalizing on what's there and it's not really doing any useful function. It's just cannibalizing where it can and taking over, but it I think doesn't seem to have any, any you know, goal. Yeah, I think the arguments for that is the fact that it does use cell-to-cell communication over long distances, right? So just like the brain does, right? So there is definitely some literature out of a couple different labs that are focused on the sort of synaptic function within uh, synapses, meaning, you know, signaling across neurons within brain tumor regions and that facilitating tumor growth, right? So the idea that there could be some synergism there, that they're trying to create communication networks, you know, mini brain networks, right? Across over long distances, there's some data to, to make that make sort of sense, if that's the direction you were thinking. So in the brain, because the structures are somewhat diffuse, could you model it as primary tumor versus metastases and you know are there are there segregated isolated lumps of tumor matter that again appear to use cell-to-cell communication and if so is there coordination amongst them what kind of signaling is there etc yeah no that's a, it's a really good question i think in this situation um it that actually doesn't work right so th- there's just like a continuous gradient of tumor cells away from the center of the tumor mass with the most being in the middle and the furthest you know the least being far far away so back in the you know many decades ago in fact, to manage that aspect of this disease, they would perform entire lobectomies and hemispherectomies of patients, particularly young patients, pediatric patients with this disease, and find that you could the tumor would still recur on the on the uh, contralateral side. So there's still tumor cells out there. So that going to that going to your idea of the sort of long distance or your question on long distance uh, communication idea. But go, you know, I was thinking about your question a minute ago about what's their strategy. There's there's some interesting stuff that we found in the perspective of biological sex differences underlying these tumor, the tumor biology and the different strategies the tumors use in order to be tumors in male versus female brains, uh, which might more directly speak to, I think, your question. Yeah, what are the differences you see? Yeah, so we did a biological study with this group, uh, Josh Rubin's lab up at Washington University, and we studied, I think we published this last year, that was looking at sort of the more biology side, and then I'll tell you about the mathematical modeling side, so or the imaging mathematical neuro-oncology side. So on the biological side, we basically took RNA-seq. Uh, so look at the molecular transcriptome of these patients and looked at their these cohorts. And we basically asked the question, what's common in, pa- in the patterns of the molecular signatures of these tumors? And we subtracted what was common between male and female out. And then you look at the remainders and the remainder has a female pile and a male pile. And if you just look at the differences between those two populations and you specifically those two um, you know, signatures, you just look at long lived females, for example, patients with, with GBM that did that lived fairly long, the signature for those tumors that those patients that were associated with tumors that ultimately lived longer had had a signal for what are like integrin signaling. So that would suggest something like maybe invasion would be a strategy that these cells were using to be able to facilitate longer survival for the patient. And, and so just that's one thing to set aside. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. On the male side, um, the, the complete opposite was was true. It was patients that lived long 
that were male, their gene signatures were most uh, related to cell cycle control, meaning the tumors weren't as proliferating as much. And so that, and that makes a lot of sense, right? You'd expect a patient will live longer if their tumor isn't going as fast from a proliferation standpoint. And then maybe the alternative uh, for the, for the male, so that was for the, for the male and the alternative for the female was that there, the, um, you know, there would be some sort of control of invasion that was facilitated for, for females to be able to create long live patients. So we took that information and we then looked at, scaled it up to the patient MRI level to look at the dynamics of the you disease. Mean the whole body? Yeah, like the patient's brain MRI, because this disease really only stays in the brain. Uh, so it starts in the brain and stays in the brain. It very ra- rarely metastasizes outside of the brain. Although patients <laughs> had like transplants of like livers, there are case reports of patients with liver transplant having GBM, ultimately being able to transmit GBM via via that liver that they transplanted. So there's there is some evidence that the cells are circulating. It's just, they're not leaving the brain um, in typically treated patients, extremely rare. So the interesting thing, so now you're looking at patient brain MRIs and you're just asking, okay, well, are there differences in these proliferation dynamics and invasion dynamics that we can infer from those images and using the mathematical modeling techniques that we've built to be able to sort of predict the hurricane path for each of these tumors, uh, we can estimate how invasive a given patient's tumor is and how proliferative a given patient's tumor is. And when we quantify that across hundreds of patients, we found that just like the molecular mechanisms suggested, if patients had an in, had had a, a control of their invasion patterns, um, that mattered for women, but it didn't matter for for men. So if their invasion patterns and their extensive tumor invasion um, was higher or lower, that had an impact on out, outcome for patients that were female, but not for male. And so that was sort of self consistent with that that biological mechanism story. And then further, female tumors tend to respond differently to treatment uh, than males. In general, uh, females live a few months longer than males do uh, with this disease. And it's really only been the last few years that people have uh, really looked at this biology that might underline that. They attribute it to lots of different sociological things, um, but not a lot of biological mechanisms. So one of the aspects we found there on the treatment response is that females respond better to the current standard of care therapy. So this whole idea of giving all the patients the same treatment when they have an unbelievably diversely heterogeneous disease, as I described before, and there's differences between the sexes on uh, overlaying even that complexity of biology, uh, it really begs the question of, you know, where's the opportunity to look at more individualized treatment strategies and less of these uh, pooled strategies, these standard care strategies that, that are sort of suboptimal. So this this type of uh, cancer does not metastasize anywhere outside of the brain. Like how how far does it go in the most advanced cases? Uh, it'll go down the spine. Uh, it'll go anywhere in the cerebral spinal uh, cerebral spinal fluid contained system. So the CNS, the central nervous system, it'll it can extend throughout that. But generally speaking, it doesn't leave that. And you know, one argument is that it, the patient succumbs before the tumor would metastasize further. That's one one theory, but it's not really fully known. It was so expected that it was so such isolated to the brain itself, the CNS itself, the central nervous system itself, that uh, patients were allowed to have, um, you know, after postmortem ha- have transplants. But the, that is. Um, are, there, are there parts I've heard that the uh, the cerebral spinal fluid people don't know. Essentially, if you do like a material balance, I guess the brain creates it. But the sinks for it, where does it go in the body and end up? And, you know, 
if the brain's continuously making it, eventually the spine would explode if there's too much fluid. <laughs> where does it go? And can actually cancer, aggressive cancer, shed a light on, you know, if the cancer gets there and you're like, hmm, how would it get there? Maybe that tells you where the CNS fluid goes. Yeah, there's, yeah, I think there's def- definitely several mechanisms. The, the CNS, the control system there is this, the it's created within the brain, but there are outlets within the brain as well to research circulate this and to, to, to divert this to the circulatory system to outside of the CNS is what I'm trying to say. But I think the more likely mechanism, you know, or, or more common mechanism, maybe not the only, but the more common mechanism in patients that have had, um, that have metastasis outside of the CNS are probably patients for which, you know, they had a significant surgical intervention. And during the surgery, the cells sort of escaped. And then they had, uh, you know, sort of different exposures to where they could, where they could expand. Um, That's one, one theory there. But, you know, I don't, I, I, I don't know a lot in that area, I think, because I don't think there's a lot to know in that area yet, or not a lot, not a lot known in that area as yet, yet. Well, again, looking at, when you look at the pictures of, of these tumors, you look at the morphology, and then you look at them on a molecular level, etc. What can you, can you predict? Can you predict in which direction yeah. the tumor will go next? And where will it go? And you know what, what kind of things jump out at you when you look at this imagery and study this stuff? Yeah, so we can absolutely predict which direction a tumor is going to go. We feel really confident and we've d- developed lots of tools over the last 15 years to be able to do that. So we can basically take a patient's MRI and generate a predictive map of literally a hurricane map of where the, the hurricane, the disease is going from an imaging perspective. Where will I'd be able to see tumor on MRI in three months. What would that look like? And we have a very good system to be able to do that. That's one thing. Uh, Then in addition, so let's say you have some targeted treatment that targets, like I said, gene A is broken. So it targets brokenness of gene A. And since we have these machine, we have these image localized biopsies that allow us to read out where in the tumor, the biology might be different. We can then learn the patterns on MRI that tell us, oh, well, that's where gene A is broken. So we can track that over time and then watch the regions that are vulnerable to treatment A, you know, whatever the drug is, and watch those resolve and then figure out what the other populations of tumor cells are in, in, in these patients. So what, you know, because these tumor cells are still in the patient's brain, by definition of the fact that it's a patient's brain and you're not going to be able to be generate, you know, you're not going to be able to remove all these tum- diffusely invaded tumor cells. That's the, the primary problem in this disease. You have this, this complex disease inside an organ, the organ that you, you can't remove a lot of, right. To be able to uh, collect tissue to figure out what's in the tumor. You by definition, always leave tumor cells behind and the heterogeneity of those tumor cells are relatively unknown. So how do you tackle that disease? Right. And you're kind of hobbled in 15 different directions on, on how to, to, to manage that disease. So by building these imaging informed models, we can then overlay on the patient's MRI, the vulnerabilities, like what treatment would work there, but not there. What treatment would work well, here, but not there. If you could see the lineages, how true are they? Do they always progress along similar lines or do they diverge? And is it so heterogeneous as to be you know, only somewhat predictive? When you say lineage, do you mean direction, like physical direction? No, no. Uh, well, physical direction, but actually what what's going to be... what. What kind of uh, either epigenetic marks or mutations in the underlying genes will you observe? How how predictive is that when you look Got at it. it? Yes. No, I understand what you're saying now. So basically, given the clonal diversity of what the tumor sample is that you have under the microscope right now, what you have in your hand, not what's left in the t- patient, can you predict what's going, what's the next population is going to come up and what next, what next target? So if I kill off some... Yeah. 
major clone subclone populate populating like if i label you know i'm, I'm yeah. just making a, making this up you know the first mutation observed is number one and then two and three and four and, you know there's like three paths that this kind of brain tumor tends to take i'm just making this up you know yep and we get all the way out to like mutation 55 and i you know i've you looked at let's say a thousand brains a thousand of these tumors and they all seem to follow along these three pathways and now you got a new person and you take out you know part of the tumor and you see they're up to like you know all the three pathways are developed and there are a certain, you know, distance along the path. Can you then say, okay, this is probably what's going to happen in the progression and where more tumors will show up in the near future. Is it that predictive? Yeah, I wish that was true. And I'm going to say no, um, based on the data that we have right now. So currently one, it's hard to capture the full molecular diversity of the disease because there's intrinsically always tumor cells far afield from where the surgical site is always. Uh, so we have to guess a little bit about those tumors, uh, tumor cells. But even when we have, say, let's say you're approaching a very deep tumor and you collect surgical biopsies along your way in, the molecular diversity of those tumor cells can still be quite high, right? And so even if you hit some sort of base mutation that's common to a lot of the tumor cells, let's say EGFR is a good one, you see that it's common to a lot of tumor cells. The further challenge with this disease is it's in the brain. And so getting drugs into the brain is this whole separate category of challenges because the brain is in, is evolutionarily preserved to not let bad things in. And generally these chemotherapies are be- thought from the b- brain perspective, bad, right? So the blood brain barrier impedes our ability to deliver those. So that optimal sort of test of being able to say, I know the clonal diversity of this piece of tissue I'm going to, that is in the, this patient's brain. And then therefore, if I just hit the base, base clone hard enough, then I can knock the whole thing out, or I can hit this clone. And I know that means this next clone will, will, will automatically pop up, pop up the complexity of this disease from the drug delivery perspective overlaid on all the other complexity makes that practically impossible to be able to detect unless the path that we've been going down is like I was saying, the using these image localized biopsies and then AI to build a maps that converts an, a patient's routine MRI into a map of where's clone A, where's clone B, where's clone C, right? And when you do that, then you could think of like an adaptive therapy strategy, which I think is the direction you're trying to go, where you can target clone A and watch clone B get a little bit bigger. So then you add in a drug for clone B and then, oh wait, no, clone C is going to show up now. And then you can cycle between those various therapies. The, the pragmatic right. limitation historically has been an inability to be able to see where those cells are. So that's why we've put so much effort over the last several years into these image localized biopsies, which are often collected. Like you have a deep tumor and you're going to collect tumor cells, tumor, you know, tumor cells in route to the tumor, which you would have naturally um, removed during any surgery anyways, just these small biopsies you would have removed anyways during the, during the surgery. So they would have, those cells would have already come out of the brain, but they wouldn't have been sent to pathology for quantification. They wouldn't have been sent to pathology because they weren't considered the most aggressive portion of the disease. You see what I mean? Yeah. I mean, even looking at the parts that are, you know, easily visible and taken out, is there that much heterogeneity that you you still can't quantify it? Like how many, you know, just on a a ballpark, like how many different, uh, how many differences are there in, in tumor cells? It's, like, what it's is heterogeneity? Thousands, millions, dozens? Yeah, oh gosh. There's definitely a diverse heterogeneity, but there's probably six primary gene targets that are the most common gene mutation-based things, right? The types of mutations for those particular genes can be widely heterogeneous, but there's about six primary sort of standard 
most common targets you see across glioma. EGFR is one of them. Um, EGFR amplification. PDGFR amplification is another. All of those stitched together are, you know, it's six times the various versions in which you make those six, right? To get EGFR amplification, you get it, you get it 30 different ways, right? And, you know, there's X number of mutations, I can't even count, I, I wouldn't know, um, that can also manifest in terms of resulting in the phenotype of EGFR amplification, for example. So, the, so is, is there a Pareto though? Like, you know, if I imagine, um, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna again making this up. Like, if I imagine my lung, you know, it starts out with the main bronchus and then branches and branches and branches, but still, it has a pretty discernible structure, just like a tree. Is there the same phenomena with the heterogeneity of cancer? Like, if you map it out, all the known mutations and pathways and lineages and all that, do you see any structure, or is it just like it looks like chaos? I, I think what you're looking for is structure on the phenotype side, right? Because evolution doesn't select on the genotype side. It doesn't care what gene mechanisms you use to get to whatever the behavior is. It just cares about the behavior, the phenotype, right? So, so I think there's definitely a lot of structure, but the glue for that structure is on the phenotype side, not the genotype side. So it's not that EGFR is amplified. It's that what does the EGFR amplification mean in terms of the cellular strategies? Do you see what I'm saying? So I think in order to- If you start with changes at the genetic level, I know know phenotype can, you know, a lot more factors goes into, you know, creating phenotype. But if you back it up and look at the genetic modifications and changes, is that discernible? Does that have a structure? Does that tell you anything? Or it's not useful? No, it tells you enough to tell you that there's probably six guys that are the main genes that matter. And that there are definitely uh, one of the most interesting series of publications, not our work, was that there's, you know, sort of a limited number of identifiable clones based on current sort of approaches within a given tumor based on specimens that may be limited, right? You may not be able to capture the full diversity of the disease because you're not capturing where all the tumor cells are, given that caveat. But that GBM thought to be maybe a relatively small. So the argument towards what you're trying to say, which is if you know what that structure is, then you can, you know, have this small list of clones, you know, clone A through clone D, and and then you can just iterate on therapeutics that handle the com- competition or synergism or com- communalism or whatever the population dynamic is between each of these clones. And and I think in an idealized situation, you might be able, the data suggests you might be able to get there. Um, But I think the trick is that these, you know, mutations are, are not really selected on, and therefore the treatments for them are not really selected on, they're not, they're not selected on, right? It's the phenotype. It's, the behavior that that results in, right? So like, I just think of like, you know, my, my background coming, coming from a, you know, quantitative sciences perspective. I mean, but, but they look like we have epigenetic marks and that's in sure. response to our phenotype interacting with our environment. And so it's essentially reporting back. It's not necessarily changing the underlying nucleotide sequences, but you know, it's methylating them, regulating genes. In the well, same way, well, cancer, guess- you know, is it, is it like an organism that again is, has a phenotype, even though it's heterogeneous, and that's interacting with the environment, and then it's changing in response to that. Yeah, no, I think I think that's a really cool way to think about the disease, right? Is like any disease, cancer in general. I mean, I think that's a really insightful way to 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 think about it. What I what I was trying to say is that if you look up what are the common features of, let's say, a mutation, a common one that exists in this disease, it's always 
proliferation and invasion. Different ways for the tumor cells to get to the goal, to their goal of proliferating or invading. Um, and if that's the case, then it kind of the, the gene, the gene mechanisms by which they get there, the, the tumor is the tumor cell population strategy doesn't seem to care, right? They don't care about which way they get there as long as they get there, right? And so if that's that- what I mean. So they, they abandon, like the cells give up their old jobs of yeah. acting in the brain in the way they used to. And, and again, it, it doesn't seem apparent to you that they have any new jobs. Now all they do is they just want to proliferate and invade and they, they don't, they've given up their old functionality. Is that what well, sort of, sort of, yeah, no, it's a good, good point. Um, sort of, I think it's more like the reason brain tumor is so brain tumors are so horrific at their continual ability to continue to be bad actors is they tap into their basic um, developmental pathways, right? Of how did neurodevelopment happen that was evolved over, you know, eons, right? And so the, that developmental pathways is such an essential function for the overall human program, like the, the beast, the, the animal, the human, the human, in order the human function, the function, if the development does not process for the, the central nervous system, then the, then it, it, the cost is high for the overall, right? Whereas you can imagine other organs, that's less of a case, right? So that right. has to be a really perfected system. And so they're just reverting back to, so the opposite of kind of what you were saying is that they're reverting back, but they're reverting back to that system more than any others. Do you still see though that all the uh, the cancer mass is acting as a unified whole with communication amongst the parts? Or yeah, do you think it's like every man for himself, meaning every cell for himself? No, I definitely don't think it's every man or cell for himself. There's beautiful work out of Michelle Manji's group at Stanford and uh, Frank Winkler's group out of Germany uh, that basically speaks to this idea that there's a much more intrinsic communication dynamic and that it's much less cellular automatous, right? There's the ability for the individual cells to wander off, but because the brain, if, if you look at the brain under a microscope, just like normal brain, the cells are connected with these tiny you know, dendrite type like connections across long distances. And there's different categories of things like astrocytes in the brain that, you know, have different scales associated with them over which distance they connect things, right? So the whole brain is about connectedness. So naturally the tumor is definitely in, has a similar connectedness. And in fact, there's some recent work out of the Winkler group that suggested that if you were to target and watch, you know, a single cell die here, um, you know, wherever here is, right, some distance away, the system will realize that there's a missing cell and any daughter cell that's produced over there will run to that spot to fill in. So going to that systems dynamics, I think there is definitely increasingly an appreciation for systems dynamics, but it's early days. There's only um, only a handful of labs that I know of that are working in that space. Yeah, early on, you said, oh, yeah, we can predict where the tumor is going to go next. Well, how do you know? What tells you that? Does does the tumor make a certain shape? Like I'm joking, but does it make like an arrow shape that points to the right? You know, it's going to go there next. Like, you know, how do you know where it's going to go? It kind of goes back to those white matter highways I was telling you about earlier, right? So that if if the brain has a certain anatomical structure, every every brain is slightly different, but there's general rules that are glue them all together. And those white matter highways are great facilitators for tumor invasion. It's very logical to see, oh, if you, that general direction is the is the logical next direction. The time course of that number one is is what we build these mathematical models for, and the you know detailed you know morphologic 
heterogeneity of where that direction is, um, is where these models come in. These literally, it's like a hurricane map, right? It's no different than you're looking at a hurricane. You're going, hey, that's New Orleans right there. I bet it's going to hit towards New Orleans, right? It's sort of, you can see the trajectory that they're on. On a hurricane map though, there'll be like high and low pressure fronts that are moving in direction. So what constitutes that in the, in the cell world and the cancer world, like what constitutes a gradient or a front that would take it in a direction? So there's a couple different things. One is that the nutrient dependency within the brain is different, right? So gray matter has a much more nutrient rich uh, region than, than white matter, one can argue. Um, it's highly cellular regions, but it's also nutrient rich. So there are definitely dis- heterogeneity in, in, um, in local regional like nutrient populations and where that sinks and sources, you can think of it that way within, within the brain. So that's one aspect, but in general, they just want to flee and populate as much domain as they possibly can. So there there are a couple, like I said, there's a couple of these highways and that being the primary uh, location um, of expansion, but it's, it's kind of all man, all directions are, are a go, you know, from the, the strategy perspective, it's not, not quite as oriented, um, so it's somewhere between that whole sphere idea, you know, just going out in all directions and um, overlay the morphology of the brain, add a little uh, sprinkle of the fact that there's slight, there's there's variation, some variation in the nutrient environment. And there you have it. I mean, if there's upcoming resections, you know, surgeries, mm-hmm. can you instruct or ask, hey, while you're taking this stuff out, can you suck out a little bit of CNS from other parts of the brain? and keep it as separate vials so we could analyze and see if there's tumor cells there distally, you know, and then you wouldn't have to, I don't know if you could do this, but then you wouldn't have to like cut into the brain at a whole bunch of points and hook a yeah. bunch of holes. Maybe you could just swab some or again, get a little bit of a, a couple drops of fluid from distal areas and, and see if there's upcoming problems or cells that have moved somewhere. Yeah. Um, so the, the way surgeries generally are done is they started a single focus, which is at the center usually of what the, the mass is. Again, there's always tumor cells kind of in all directions out from that. So it's not that they go in multiple times. It's rare that they do um, surgically in the case of GBM. What they would do in the second in, in for second or third surgeries would be a significant mass like local recurrence or distant recurrence. They would go they would ret- you know return to the OR. But when but they, even, even in a even in a given surgery, are, they, are you saying they're like I guess because they're going to the brain, they're just making a whole that's barely big enough to get in there? Is it almost laparoscopic? There's a lot of interest in minimally invasive or, you know, minimally invasive, not the right word because neurosurgery has a very specific word, terminology, meaning behind that, but small incision, you know, not expand necessarily if you can avoid it, not necessarily having a large craniotomy hole um, is definitely something that's of interest for a variety of reasons. But but what I was going to circle back to is just mention one bit is that these image localized biopsies kind of are doing exactly what you were asking is like, can you, can you biopsy where in those regions that you kind of were, you're going to injure anyway, as you go to the surgery, right? They're, they're going to be part of that. They're in the tumor region, um, but they're not the hotspot of what the surgeon is targeting. The surgeon mm-hmm. targets what they can see on the MRI, but what they can see on the MRI only tells them a a small fraction of is really the tip of the iceberg of the actual overall disease. And so, so when, during the surgery, you're going to experience, you're going to run into the other pieces of the iceberg, you know? And so those image localized biopsies I was referring to earlier, those are what are collected. They're like other pieces of the iceberg that you wouldn't normally, you know, that are not 
the, the center of the the disease. They would normally have been removed. They would absolutely be part of the normal um, surgical removal, but they wouldn't have been the focus of what the neuropathologist looks at under the microscope because it's hard to find those tumor cells. They know they're in there, but they're like not going to easily see that under the microscope. So I'm going to go to the place that I know I can see them. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it would, I don't know, would it be useful to do a spinal tap along with the surgery to to see way far away, we you know what shows up there. Yeah, there is definitely some interest in in two things. One is circulating tumor DNA, which which in the in the blood itself, um, and in the CNS. There is some work in the CNS, though. The relevance of the CNS is really when there's leptomeningeal spread, uh, which is not a very common outcome of GBM. Again, because it's kind of going from inside the brain parenchyma to begin kind of like on the surface of the brain, and there's a different biological process. Um, to that. So it, 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 it's not the most common. So the CNS tells you a little bit, uh, but the CNS is more useful in other brain cancers like lymphoma. That's, yes. CSS, CSF, I meant to say, sorry. The CSF. Okay. Do, you, do you see any niche construction, you know, feathering of the nest before the, uh, you know, the cancer spreads to certain areas? Yeah. So we work closely with uh, this group in, at Moffitt Cancer Center, um, specifically Sandy Anderson and Bob Gatenby on things like that, right? The questions of like, local regional heterogeneity and habitat formation within tumors. And there is absolutely that case. It is the tumor is, has its entire, an entire ecology around it and different regions have different things flourishing and, and dying. And that's contributes to that molecular and just biologic heterogeneity of the disease. Okay. And then um, have you looked to see if there's any microbiome in the brain? And if so, is there any local, like, like what's the microenvironment look like? where there's tumor and where there's normal brain cells. And again, is there like a microbiome there that you see? I don't know anything about the idea of microbiome as it relates to the brain. I do know that there's significant connections between neurobiology and neuroscience and the gut microbiome. So those, those would be the direct connections that are sort of the most direct connections that I simply know exist, but know nothing about. No, I just didn't know (laughs) if anyone has seen if there is a microbiome in the brain normally. I truly don't know. It's a good question. It's a great question. Okay. Yeah. I guess while they're, uh, you know, while they're in there, then maybe nudge them to see if uh, you can do exactly. some like 16S sequencing on what's there, the juice, the brain juice that's near the tumor. You know? <laughs> right. Exactly. And it's a good question. Just a couple more questions. Uh, so, so clinically, what, what are your goals for the next year or two, three years? Like what, what are you working on? That's going to be helpful in your opinion. So we've partnered. So this, this problem of this, exactly what you've been asking about this heterogeneity of the disease and uh, intratumoral heterogeneity of the disease. And how do you even track it and know if I po- push down on this clone, will another clone pop up and being able to know which ones those are? Uh, we have built this now, you know, growing suite of, you know, sort of more machine learning AI based tools that convert a patient's MRI into maps of where those clones or population tumor populations are. It could be clones. It could be you know, where are the T cells in the brain, whatever it is, uh, so that you can convert a patient's MRI into these maps of the biology at play across the entire brain. And when you, as a result of those, we partnered with now, I think nine or 10 clinical trials to deploy those sorts of maps relevant to each of those clinical trials to say, look, I've got a drug that again, targets clone A, it would be great if, you know, we could see that it's actually functioning in these patients. And what you find is that you could overlay those maps on the serial imaging of those patients and watch clone A decrease or not and say, yes, the the drug is functioning or not on that clone. Um, But the real problem is this clone C over here, it just keeps showing up and it's, it's the real beast. And so we really need a combination therapy that's clone A, clone C, 
going to your point, could you get the, you know, sort of build these combinations and build um, a strategy to, to control this disease and eliminate, ultimately eliminate this disease. So that's the, probably the very, the next year is focused on a variety of those clinical trials. In addition we are um, designing some new strategies for how to spatially and temporally optimize things like radiation therapy to match the fact that there's this differential invasion patterns for each of these tumors and then tailor them in smart ways. Are there um, variations that only show up after chemo or after radiation? Variations meaning specific molecular events or is that what you mean? Yeah, like certain lineages that only arise after certain kinds of chemo or radiation. No, there's a lot of data to suggest the clones are there beforehand or the, the, the molecular, you know, populations, molecular distinct populations are there beforehand. Uh, it's just that chemo, uh, chemo or radiation, whatever the treatment is, is great at knocking out several of these. Some are popping up. Some new ones are popping up as a result of, you know, the recurrence. In addition, things like radiation and chemotherapy, which is the, you know, backbone of the standard of care for this disease also induces a lot of mutagenesis, right? There's a ton of mutations as a result of things like temozolomide, chemotherapy that's used in this disease. So you can have lots of populations with lots of new, new, new mutations brought into the game and whether those are relevant to, you know, and relevant and targetable is, is another question, but there's a lot more that's brought in as a function of these very um, cytotoxic treatments that are used. Well, that's what I mean. I would think that uh, chemo would cause the appearance of certain uh you know, mutations or lineages that, that weren't there before. Absolutely because it's true. A, a deliberate adaptation to, I mean, that seems, a, it seems like that's what cancer is. It's an ongoing adaptation to its environment, especially in light of pushback, you know, from the immune system, et cetera. So I don't know. I would just think that, uh, again, chemo and radiation, all that would, would cause certain things to arise that were not there. Yeah, that's absolutely true. In the case of um, temozolomide chemotherapy, there's something called a hypermutator mutation phenotype that results of exposure to lots of temozolomide and temozolomide is the standard chemotherapy disease. So um, it's fairly common to see these additional new mutations, whether those mutations have meaning, meaning like they're significantly changing the phenotype of cells, all of that is um, there's, you know, a diversity of work underway in that area. Okay. Well, very good. Um, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? Mathematicaloncology.org is my website. Okay, that's pretty and simple. That's the e- easiest place to go find everything. So it's um, uh, we usually keep things fairly updated. Okay, well, excellent. Well, yeah, Kristen, it's been a great call. And thank you so much for coming on the Thanks, podcast. Kristen. I appreciate it. So nice to talk to you. Thank you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.